to The Inner Circle, the podcast bringing you into honest conversations about climate action. Together, we'll talk to business owners, experts, activists, and others who are working on circular economy initiatives on the ground. We'll uncover what we're doing right, where people are going wrong, and what needs to be done to change the system to value people and the planet. Together, we're making the impossible possible. Welcome back to The Inner Circle. My name is Erin Andrews. I'm the founder and executive director of Impact Zero, and I'm so happy to have you back with me this week to talk about all things circular economy. This week is the first of a series that we are going to be calling Group Chat, which I mentioned last week. And usually I would have a bunch of friends with me. We'd be talking about cool events. But since we are recording this on the long weekend, obviously getting some people to record with us was not going to happen because, I mean, people are out enjoying the beautiful weather. So what I want to do is to kind of introduce this new episode style as a solo episode. And the idea behind these is to really just like talk about current events, things going on, things that we think that you should not be missing, um, and then give a little bit more color to the traditional media coverage of certain topics. So um, this week, we're going to be talking about three articles that are making the rounds in the news I mean, some are actually making rounds. Some are not being covered at all by news, but uh, we want to talk about them so they don't get forgotten. Um, so the first um, article that we're going to be talking about is Unilever, who are working to introduce recyclable toothpaste tubes um, in the UK. So this article is really a press release that Unilever issued. And I think it's one that's kind of interesting because there's mixed reactions to it, obviously. Some people are super jazzed and some people are not. Um, but I want to make sure that we are, you know, spreading awareness about things that big companies, especially like Unilever, are working on, but then adding some additional context to the solution that they have. So um, I'm going to be reading some excerpts from this. So essentially what's going on is Unilever has redesigned um, toothpaste tubes in the UK to be actually recyclable in um, certain conditions. So quoting from the press release, so it says, traditionally, most toothpaste tubes are made from a combination of plastic and aluminum, which gives the packaging its flexibility, but also makes it difficult to recycle because, I mean, those two materials, once they're combined, it's over. Uh, so instead of aluminum, the new tubes will use a material made mostly of high-density polyethylene, which is HDPE, um, which is one of the most widely recyclable plastics globally. It will also be the thinnest plastic material available on the toothpaste market at 220 microns, which will reduce the amount of plastic needed for each tube. To encourage wider industry change, the innovation will be made available from other companies to adopt. So what's really interesting about this is that they're kind of like redesigning, not just with recyclability in mind, but also to reduce the amount of plastic going into each two, which they mentioned. Um, And really, really what, what I think is actually quite surprising, and I'll give them credit for this, is that they are making this, um, 
this kind of what you might consider like proprietary information. They're making it public so the industry um, can change together because what happens a lot of the times is like companies will come up with these cool solutions to sustainability problems or um, in this case, like plastic stuff. Um, And they'll be like, oh, but it's ours, so you can't use it. And kind of like coming at sustainability with that like traditional business lens of like, well, it's ours and we want to like be a differentiator on the market. Like that's not really supporting the transition to a more sustainable economy because you're only like you're going to put in all these resources to find these solutions, but then like not actually make it scalable. So I'll give Unilever... Um, some credit to that. Um, because I think what's going to end up happening is like, well, like they're doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, maybe. Um, I do think there will be a business benefit, um, to being able to, um, make this solution available to everyone, whether it's like because of their brand or, you know, building deeper relationships with competitors, even. Um, I think they're probably looking at this from that like long term perspective, which I can appreciate. Um, so I think it's really great that like, you know, they've gone through the effort of figuring out how to reduce their impact. It's not perfect, but they can reduce it um, while, you know, making it shareable, which is cool. Um, something else that the uh, press release says is to drive further change across the waste management industry, Unilever is working with global recycling organizations to ensure that the new tubes are collected and recycled. This will be the case in France, where consumers can put the new tubes in their home recycling bin ready to be collected and turned into new products. Brands using Signal also plan to introduce more PCR, which is post-consumer recycled plastics, into their recyclables, um, recyclable tubes by 2022 in France and in other European markets. So this will significantly reduce the use of virgin plastics and support the move towards the circular economy, which I think we can all understand, right? If you're sourcing more post-consumer materials in your products, then you're not going to have to put virgin plastic in there. Um, and then it also says more broadly, the innovation contributes to Unilever's commitment to ensure that 100% of its plastic packaging is designed to be reusable, recyclable, or compostable, and its ambition to help collect and process more plastic packaging that it sells. So Unilever is clearly trying to make an impact um, on whether it's like fueled by extended producer responsibility legislation happening in Europe or not. Um, They're trying to reduce the impact that their products have on the planet, which is great. I mean, we can't hang on that. (laughs) The only thing um, that I would really question is, you know, especially for something like a toothpaste tube, like cleaning it out and getting it recycled is, is one thing. Um, and like once they can actually, you know, get it cleaned and get it done, then like, that's great. But I, I honestly a little bit like question if this is going to be fully possible. Um, because I mean, they're piloting in, in France and Europe, but, um, like if you think about like Canada's single stream or Ontario's, sorry, single stream recycling bins, like I'm not super, super convinced that this would translate well to the North American, um, markets. However, I do think that regardless, it's really great that they're redesigning everything to be less, to require less plastic and um, additionally, like getting rid of that plastic and aluminum combination because that could be really, really bad. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, usually if this was our group chat with all my friends, um, we would be kind of going into more um, discussion around this, um, just so you know. But obviously, since it's just me, you get my thoughts, which, you know, could be fun, right? 
That's great too. Um, so that is the first one. I'm curious to know your thoughts, actually. If you if you follow us on Instagram or on LinkedIn or wherever, like send me a message. Like I'm curious to like have a little bit more conversation about this type this type of thing too. Um, you're also actually welcome to email me. My email is Aaron at impactsphere.ca. Um, and maybe we can, you know, go back and forth on these articles. But um the next one that I wanted to talk about is more of an awareness thing. I don't have a lot of comments on this. Um, but I did want to make sure that we're using our platform to share, um, the good, the bad, and the, I guess, buried headlines, if you want to call it that. Um, because, you know, when we talk about sustainability, the recyclable toothpaste containers are great. Um, but we also need to make sure that we are advocating for Indigenous human rights. And one thing, that I want to be talking about is an RCMP investigation. Um, and so just for a quick content warning, we're going to be talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women um, because I think this is something that especially the media just like completely looks over. Um, but it is really important to me and to our organization to make sure that um, everybody is you know, safe and everyone can live a happy and full life. And in this case, especially Indigenous women are not given that privilege, um, very sadly. So before I get into this article, I did want to share some statistics from, uh, the Native Women's Association of Canada. So there are, are there are fact sheets online that you can get, but this is one that was formally published. Um, and so, if you if you are not aware of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, um, it is essentially this terrible we I, we can call it a crisis um, that Indigenous women are so are significantly more likely to be to be taken to be murdered um, than other women in Canada. And this, uh, this fact sheet points out that most of it is happening in the Western area of Canada. Um, however, this is something that puts a lot of women at risk, obviously, and it's terrible and should not be happening. Um, so I would encourage if you want to learn more about this, like you can easily Google this stuff, but, um, there are lots of reports that the government has done. I mean, they haven't taken action to like stop it from happening, but they have done a lot of studies which I guess is good because you need to measure things as well. Um, but we really need to take action as a society and like show that this is not okay and we don't stand by this and we don't condone this. Um, because a lot of the times it's um, women murdered by men, women murdered by RCMP officers even. There have been cases of that or even like systemically. It, it's happened even recently across the country and I'm sure you've heard of various cases that have been, that have amazingly made it to the media, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them are hidden. Um, so one thing that I wanted to point out is that the majority of these cases occur in urban areas. Um, but you all, we also need to be putting resources towards rural and on-reserve communities because this is something that happens across Canada. So one stat, it says, of the cases where this information is known, meaning like they know of a woman or a girl who was taken, um, 70% of the women and girls disappeared from an urban area 
and 60% were found murdered in an urban area. Only a small number of cases have occurred on reserve, so 7% of missing and 13% of murder cases happened on reserve. So while the majority of cases occurred in urban areas, this violence often has a direct impact on rural or reserve communities. Most Aboriginal peoples living in the urban areas maintain close ties to their home communities. The shock and grief of a missing or murdered community member impacts the entire community no matter where the violence takes place. So clearly you can see based on these stats, it's a lot of women who are leaving reserve, but then obviously their family and their community is highly impacted if someone is murdered or missing. Like that's, that's I think, something we can all agree on. And there, the impacts, like it, it's crazy and upsetting. It's not crazy. It's upsetting that this is happening to women at all. And it's even more upsetting that this is happening to a population of women who have been um, systemically um, disadvantaged from starting like 400 years ago, if you want to go that far back. But even today, like there's just so much working against women. Like if you think about it, you know, women across the world have deal with barriers to everything. And then if you add on being an indigenous woman, like it just completely intensifies the impacts that they have to deal with. And one of the really huge things is literally being taken, which is just completely not okay. Um, so another stat on here, it says Aboriginal women are almost three times more likely to be killed by a stranger than non-Aboriginal women are. So in this database, um, it says that 16.5% of offenders are strangers with no prior connection to the woman or girl. Um, 17% of offenders are acquaintances of the woman or girl. And 23% are current or former partner of the woman or girl. And this is a, this is something of women being um, killed by partners is um, unfortunately something that happens all over the world. Um, however, it's even more so a problem if for indigenous women. So um, I don't think, I, I don't want to go too much into this because this is a really heavy topic. Um, but I do want to, you know, spark the awareness. And then I'd encourage you to, to do more research because there are a lot of resources available. But um, this ties back to um, an article that I want to talk about, about the Nunavut RCMP who are investigating a homicide death of the Grizzlies actor Emerald McDonald. So she, so this article says that her body was find, found outside, or sorry, at a cabin outside um, Kugluktuk on May 3rd. So this happened in Nunavut. Um, they're currently asking for help in an investigation um, into the death of a woman earlier in, in on May 3rd. Um, they said that it was a homicide and in a news in a news release, police said that McDonald's was last seen in Kugluktuk on April 30th as she was buying supplies to go to her family's cabin for the weekend. She then traveled by snowmobile to the cabin um, and that's where she was last seen. So it's very unfortunate. I mean, this article, obviously, she became well-known in her role in a 2018 film called uh, The Grizzlies. And that obviously is partially why this has made headlines. Um, and it's unfortunate that 
only women who, you know, we have a, a personal connection to or like have some sort of like, um, not not necessarily like celebrity, but like someone who is popular and who has is in the entertainment industry is being we have awareness about her. But like there are so many other people who have not even been found or even have leads or even know about because they just completely disappear. So um, I guess my first call is like, if you know of this person or if you know of anything about this, I, I know we don't have a ton of um, listeners in and none of it, but I mean, if you're, if you have connections, if you know of anyone there, if you know, if you have, um, family or friends, like I just want to spread, spread awareness about this one case and also use it as an opportunity to talk about, um, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, because this is a, something that is completely, um, not even, I mean, it's part of Canada's history. <laughs> like this is something that we've been doing not we as in like us personally, but like the, the institution of Canada has been condoning for years. Um, and obviously things are, are hopefully changing as leadership changes, but we still have these like structural, um, uh, structural kind of, I guess, reasons why these continue to happen. Like if you think about the reason that the RCMP was even, um, stood up in the first place, um, was to, uh, if you want to say ethnically cleanse Canada of indigenous people, like this is their role. This is why um, RCMP was even started. So it's of course going to be questionable when the RCMP is the one investigating um, the death of an, an, an indigenous woman. So I would encourage you to look this up. I, I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but it is something that I care about and I want to use... Um, our space here as we're talking about, you know, like news articles and things happening, like obviously there are going to be some great things that we can talk about and share it together, but like there are some ugly sides of what's going on. And if we're not protecting indigenous women, um, then we are not protecting the planet because indigenous peoples across Canada and across Turtle Island are the people who have protected the land. And it's something that they've always been advocates for. So I think it would be unfair for us to come in and say, we're going to save the world, but then like completely um, not take an intersectional approach to it. So um, that is one article that I did want to mention. I know it's kind of heavy, but um, or not kind of, it's quite heavy, but I encourage you to to look up more information about, you know, the missing and murdered Indigenous women across the country. So the last article that I wanted to talk about is the headline says young climate activists beat Germany's government in court. Could it happen here? Um, and so, I mean, there have been a number of examples of this where youth have taken their various governments to court on the grounds of, um, like their legislation not taking youth's future into account because climate change is essentially, um, gonna kill everyone. <laughs> this is a happy episode. But um what what is actually quite positive here is that it says the Germans govern the German government's defeat suggests youth led climate lawsuits can be more than merely symbolic because this is something that people are like, okay, you're gonna like take your government to court, then what? Um but what happened in this instance is that um there was a youth ac- climate activist group in Germany that basically 
took their uh, federal government to say, okay, your your climate legislation that was passed in 2019, um, you you are saying that it's too much of a future issue. Um, and you, you're not taking enough responsibility now. And this is kind of the basis of a lot of these lawsuits that youth climate activists take is like, okay, um, the German legislation that they put forward um, is not is not acting fast enough. Um, and so a quote from here from the court, it says the provisions irreversibly offload major emissions reduction burdens onto periods after 2030 because everyone has like these 2030 targets including like germany um and the court ruled that this is this government needs to actually change their legislation the one that was passed in 2019 not 2019 say like okay we have like these baby targets for 2030 and the real targets really happen by 2050 and we see this happening in a lot of companies as well as governments um so the court says like no government. <laughs> good try, but not good enough. Um, so they need to be updating their legislation to really make sure that um, everything that they're holding their country to is actually in the best interest of future generations. The other thing that happened after this this ruling came down, um, it says that Germany's leaders, who were already feeling the heat from a Green Party surge in the polls, quickly emerged with a new draft law that increases the emissions cut targets for the end of the decade dramatically. So from 55% below 1990 levels to 65% below. So they also brought forward their net zero target date by five years. And so this is all in response to the youth saying, you know what, like this is BS. You cannot leave all the emissions reductions to us in the future because we have a problem now. Um, and it's crazy because it was, I believe, the Supreme Court, where was it? No, the Constitutional Court um, is the one that um, that was deciding this. And it's, it's saying that like, okay, now governments and because if you're in Canada right now, you're probably okay, cool, like Germany, whatever. But the thing is, this sends a signal um, to other governments around the world, like this sets a precedent to say, okay, this happened in Germany. The Canadian government might be having conversations now being like, hey, this happened in Germany. This could happen here. And it's very true. It could happen here because um, Canada has equally weak targets. So all it takes is a climate activist group to take them to court. And I mean, I'm not fully well-versed on um, the the financial side of this, but the article also points out um, that the Davis Suzuki Foundation sponsors the sponsored a lawsuit um, with the Oregon-based Our Children's Trust. So, like two of them went in on it, and the suit is intended to force the federal government to adopt a more stringent emissions target. So, Our Children's Trust has sponsored other lawsuits in the U.S. Um, and then I believe David Suzuki uh, might be sponsoring one in the Canadian. No, sorry, it's EcoJustice that is sponsoring the Canadian um, lawsuit, which is taking aim at the decisions by the Ontario government to roll back the climate targets in 2018. So obviously, when Ford's government came in, they like scrapped a bunch of stuff. So. Um, there's another lawsuit underway for that. So we'll see what happens. But the, the point is, the fact that this happened in Germany is just a really, really fantastic signal to everyone else to be like, hey, 
you thought you were invincible, but you're not. So watch out. Um, and I'm personally excited to see what goes on. I mean, obviously, there have been examples of the um, the overall kind of perspective on climate change has shifted since our really huge um, climate protests and climate marches over in the last couple of years. And there's a lot of momentum building. So governments are probably seeing that um, and they're going to be changing their ways. But I mean, to have it come through the courts is even bigger. So I'm personally excited about that and looking forward to what the future holds there. Um, so those are the three articles that I wanted to talk about today. As mentioned, like I would really love to start a conversation around these. If you want to uh, join the Impact Zero network, um, it's free and we can, you know, use this as a way to facilitate conversations, whether that's like on the network on comments or if you want to send me an email. Um, I think the best way to go about it is by joining the waitlist for the Impact Zero Network because I'll be posting all of these articles in there and I'd love to have all of your comments kind of like go back and forth in the com- in the comment section of those posts and you can kind of chat with like-minded people or, you know, if you don't agree or if you, you think that something I said was not accurate or not <laughs> a good contribution, then like, cool, let's talk about it. Um, and we can do that all in the network together. So I hope you enjoyed this format. I think uh, going forward, we might have a couple other people with us on here. We'll see. But this has been uh, The Inner Circle, and I'm so happy that you have stuck with us. Season two is so good so far. Looking forward to more. Um, And I hope you have an absolutely great week, and we'll chat next week. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Inner Circle. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help others find us and learn more about the circular economy. If you'd like to join the Impact Zero network or support our work by donating, you can learn more at impactzero.ca. And if you'd like to stay connected, you can follow us on Instagram at impactzero.ca or on Twitter at impactzero underscore CA or on LinkedIn by searching Impact Zero. The Inner Circle is coordinated by Sebastian Stanescu and produced by Samantha Sturmer. Music and transitions were created by Jordan Murakami. Thanks so much for joining me and we'll talk next week.